values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. And thanks for being here. The conversation about what's going to happen at our southern border when Title 42 expires is one that is being had all over the country, not just in border states. Um, By the way, a new statement made from the Border Patrol Union, this would be the representation for the rank-and-file boots on the ground for the Border Patrol. They believe that there is also going to be a crisis at the northern border because of Title 42's expiration, that this is not going to be isolated to our southern border. Will 1,500 troops on the southern border make a difference? Well, let's hear what some of the people are saying. This is Elizabeth Schultz from ABC talking about a, what this USA and Mexico making an agreement. Mexico will continue to accept migrants that the U.S. has sent back over its border from four countries. Those four countries are Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Notably, this is a policy that had already been in place, but the announcement is that it will continue to be in place. It's not clear from the joint statement that was released exactly what Mexico will be getting in exchange. See, this is interesting to me because, again, I'm not a diplomat. Uh, Diplomacy is not my department, but this seems odd to me. The USMCA replaced NAFTA. We have an agreement in North America with all of the countries to work together when it comes to commerce and trade. Mexico benefited greatly from the USMCA and its negotiation. We've done a lot with the nation of Mexico. They are very close friends. They are allies. They are partners in commerce, the, the number one trading partner with the state of Arizona. But Mexico depends on America as well. Now, I want you to think about what that just said. We've got people coming from countries all over the world, getting themselves to Mexico, and then walking north across the border into the U.S. And we are accepting people that are coming from Mexico here in the U.S. Mexico says if you're going to turn them around and send them back, there are only certain nations will accept them from. No sense of responsibility in Mexico to not allow those people in their country. You mean to tell me that when you have people flying into Mexico or walking into Mexico, for that matter, that they're not able to say you're here illegally or you can't be here. You cannot cross into the U.S. Why are we not seeing a dual threat at the border? Meaning, why don't we have the federales or the Mexican police on their northern border like we are having the Border Patrol and CBP on our part of the border? Why is this not more of a cooperation? Is it the corruption that happens in Mexico? Is it because the cartels have effective control of things? There are answers that we need. When you hear them saying Mexico has agreed to take people, well, it is the the problem is originating in Mexico. You know, the Cubans with the wet foot, dry foot rule where Cubans could just get to American soil and claim asylum because they were from Cuba. They were political refugees. That ended during the Obama administration. And now we are seeing more and more Cubans that are arriving in the U.S. are not boarding boats from the island of Cuba, although it's still happening when they're landing on the shores of Florida. What we are seeing more and more of is they are making their way to Mexico and walking across the southern border, our southern border. Why is there not better diplomacy? This is the issue when when I criticize, and it's a fair criticism either way, but when I criticize, it's also about solutions that we should be having that we don't. And being critical of the vice president of the United States here is absolutely 100% justified. This is what her job was.
Isn't this the job she was given in fixing the border issues? Shouldn't she be negotiating with the leaders of Mexico and in some cases making some demands as the American partners that we are in so many other things that you're telling me what you're going to accept and what you're not? Well, they're coming from your country in the first place. And if they are, if that's how it's happening, then you absolutely should accept them because you made the mistake of letting them traverse your country and come into ours. It just seems odd. So what are the troops going to be doing? This is, again, the ABC News report. The Pentagon is making clear that those troops are not going to be serving a law enforcement purpose. Instead, they are there to fill, quote, critical capability gaps like ground-based detection, monitoring, and data entry and warehouse support. So really assisting the effort on the ground with customs and border protection. So if you look at the – let's start with CBP because it's two different – Missions. CBP is Customs and Border Protection, and they are at ports of entry. They are the customs officials when you fly internationally and you've got to clear customs. When you have to declare things, they are checking for agriculture. They're looking for you bringing in food, fruits and vegetables, meat, things that would may hurt or, or damage our economy or our crops. They are looking for people that are even smuggling in artifacts from around the world when people steal things and Americans buy them. They are trying to return turn artifacts to other parts of the world where they have been stolen. So CBP has a pretty broad spectrum. They are looking for drugs and for people at ports of entry. Um, Then HSI, which is Homeland Security Investigations, they get involved and make the arrests of people. So HSI works hand in hand with, with CBP. And then there's Border Patrol who cover those areas that are not ports of entry. And so these troops are going to be charged, only 1,500 of them. And most experts are saying it's not going to make a dent. By the way, Senator Mark Kelly is applauding what the White House is doing. But I don't know whether or not the senator believes it's enough. And that would be a good question is who believes this is enough. So there's criticism coming from Republicans that this is not enough. And the president's hearing from his own party in many cases. And sometimes what his party is saying, you shouldn't be putting troops on the border. So how is he handling both of these? The president really trying to walk a fine line here. On the one hand, you have Republicans who have pounced saying that he has taken a more lax immigration policy stance than, of course, his predecessor, former President Trump. But then you have Democrats. Democrats accusing him of taking too hard of a line. You know, it's interesting of how that has morphed Um, going back years. uh, And I've played the audio before and I can almost quote it verbatim, but it's more of a paraphrase. If I don't have the exact quote of Chuck Schumer is talking about uh, in year, I think it was 2009. Chuck Schumer gave a speech on how we stop illegal immigration. He refused to use the phrase. This is Chuck Schumer. He would not use the phrase undocumented worker because he said by using the word undocumented, we're showing the American people that we're not serious about stopping this. If you believe it's illegal, you'll call it it's illegal. And he went on to say, I believe it's illegal and it's wrong. That was Chuck Schumer talking about illegal immigration in 2009. And now all of a sudden he's going too far. Barack Obama called himself, President Obama called himself the deportation president. Uh, Senator Obama said that the American people have a right to be angry. Bill Clinton demanded more money for expedited deportations of illegal immigrants in this country. And now all of a sudden you've got Democrats saying Biden is taking too harsh of a stance. How do we have such a shift in policy and no one asks the questions? 
You know as well as I do when somebody runs for office or somebody is thrust into the public eye that people go through their social media accounts and hold them accountable for things they said 10 or 15 years ago. And people want to know why you said that back then. And here we are with an entire political party and the leadership of that party and Chuck Schumer in the Senate that has completely switched his position on illegal immigration 180 degrees. And when he speaks about it now, no one seems to be asking him where this shift came from. And I just find that interesting. I just find it very interesting. Coming up in a moment, U.S. News and World Report has named the number one state in education. You're not going to believe what state it is. It's coming up here in just a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, still giving you a chance to get the hottest ticket in town. Of course, that's Suns playoff tickets as they take on the Denver Nuggets. If you would like to hear your name called possibly so that you could uh, be registered to win or be one of the finalists to win these tickets, just text the word ticket to 411923. That's ticket to 411923. We'll be calling out one of those names in the 11 a.m. hour, so make sure you are listening. And the good news is for some of you, if that person whose name we call does not call in, we open the phones we take a caller so somebody listening somebody in the 11 o'clock hour is going to be qualified to win sun's playoff tickets so this is fascinating to me that for the first time ever the u.s news and world report names the best school best states for education and when it comes to higher education u.s news and world report business insider reported they ranked florida higher Higher ed- Florida's higher education at number one and pre-K through 12 education at number 14. They also recently ranked number three in last year's ranking. The state has risen 28 spots since 2017. How amazing is that? Over the last year, the state has faced education culture wars, including controversial parental rights bill. Um but And the don't say gay bill. But DeSantis also has moved to eliminate diversity, equity, and inclusion. So what they have been focusing on in Florida, whether you agree with it or not, is the basics of education. They are moving away from the politics of education. I have made this statement for a long, long time. I love teachers and I love education. I hate the politics of education. Um, I was – yesterday I got to uh, speak with a bunch of classes. Uh, a teacher named uh, Mrs. Houston asked me to come and speak to a class, the classes at Cherokee Elementary about radio. So I got to speak to four or five classrooms of fourth graders about what I do. And I love it because it's no politics. You're talking to fourth graders about radio and getting to talk on the radio. And then all I did was talk for five minutes about what I do. And then I just let them ask me all kinds of questions. And it was the highlight of my week being able to talk with these kids who are so bright and so fun and, and want to learn and asking questions and taking notes and writing things down. And it was really an experience that renewed me in my love for educators and education. The teachers I got to meet there were um, incredible. 
young teachers there that were just doing a great job with these bright kids who are so smart. And it, it also renews your your faith in the future. And because we always talk about lack of education, and there are so many kids that are not reading at grade level, they're not performing at grade level in math, uh, they're not learning history at grade level, and that is something we need to make much better. But when you sit with a bunch of kids that are as smart as these kids were and are taking notes and so polite and so curious – that's the part of teaching I wish more people could see is that these kids have such a thirst for knowledge. They are so curious about so many different things. And we as adults, we are going to fill their heads. It's going to happen. What are we filling it with? And that's why this culture war in schools, in my opinion, is such a necessary battle. So when I was with these kids, there is no politics. That We didn't talk politics. We didn't talk about anything other than what I did for a living, why I liked my job, what I did before, do I live alone, what's my dog's name, what's my favorite sports team. They asked me all kinds of questions, and I was so happy to engage and answer these kids. <clears throat> we are having a necessary battle outside of the classrooms. Parents do this all the time privately in their home. You're, to your child, you have a unified front because you want what's best for that child. Privately, you, ex, you air out your differences on the direction that you and you, you should take with your child. We do the same thing in our education system. What works and what doesn't? How many people in education are furious right now that when it comes to higher education, Florida is ranked number one in the country? Number one. Who would have ever thought that? And I guarantee you educators – and number 14 when it comes to pre-K through 12, all this controversy and the don't say gay bill and you've got um, uh, you know, the Democrats and, and they're marching on the state capitol, the elected Democrats marching through the state capitol saying the word gay over and over and over again. All the nonsense that goes on with that. But in the end, we are going to reap what we sow. Um, Colorado Teachers Union passes a resolution declaring capitalism inherently exp- that says that it uh, inherently exploits children in public schools. Um, Phoenix Union will consider return to school resource officers on campuses to address school safety. Um, it is so strange to me. Um, the idea we're going to continue to argue about did the Biden administration want to rush and open schools as soon as possible. That's what KJ, uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, KJP said, which is absolutely false. We know that that is not what happened. Um, the school topic for me is one that I will always be passionate about because I think is the most important issue for the future of this country is an educated workforce. And it begins when a child enters pre-K. What they learn and how they learn it, how quickly they learn to read, how much they love to read. You know as well as I do that if you are not good at something, most of the time you stay away from it. It's not something you want to do. You don't want to be reminded of shortcomings. Um, I'm terrible at basketball. I don't play basketball. Um, and and for some people, if you're not a very good reader, it's frustrating to not be able to read or retain what you're reading and people stay away from it. So kids that can read very well and for kids that are rewarded for their reading skills and their math skills, they tend to enjoy it and giving them that positive feedback. We need to get back to those things in schools. That's really why this fight is this fight. 
And I'm hoping we get back on track with it. In a moment, um, how much will it cost us to become carbon neutral? Senator Kennedy asks a question of somebody from uh, from the federal government. They can't answer the question, but he does. What are we going to spend and what are we going to get for it? We'll discuss it next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. I appreciate you spending some time with me today. Um, it is an interesting back and forth as uh, Louisiana Senator John Kennedy was speaking with the Biden administration official from the Department of Energy. One of their deputy secretaries, David Dirk, Turk, was testifying before the committee. And Kennedy noted that the budget requests 38 percent increase in green energy while cutting nuclear and barely uh, raising anything for fossil fuels. He then asked him to estimate how much it would cost to be carbon neutral by 2050. So he asked them how much it was going to be. He wanted to be carbon neutral by 2050. So I want you to hear this. Um, This is Senator Kennedy asking about this number. Maybe I'm not being clear. If we spent $50 trillion to become carbon neutral by 2050 in the United States of America, how how much is that going to reduce world temperatures? This is a global problem. So we need to reduce our emissions and we need to do everything we can. How much, if we do our part, is it going to reduce world temperatures? We're 13% of global emissions. You don't know, do you? You don't know, do you? You can do the math. We need to. You don't know, do you, Mr. Secretary? So we're 13% of if global emissions. If you know, why won't you we tell went, me? If we went to zero, that would be 13%. You don't know, do you? You just want us to spend $50 trillion, and you don't have the slightest idea whether it's. So there you have the the gist of the conversation. They know that it's going to cost about $50 trillion to become carbon neutral. How much will it benefit the earth? How much will it lower global temperatures? This is not done. This is the part two of this conversation. Now, I'm all for carbon neutrality, but you're the deputy secretary of the Department of Energy, and you're advocating we spend trillions of dollars to seek carbon neutrality, and you can't, and this isn't your money or my money, it's taxpayer money, and you can't tell me how much it's going to lower world temperatures? Or you won't tell me? You know, but you won't? In my heart of hearts, there is no way the world gets its act together on climate change unless the U.S. leads. Tell me how much it's going to reduce. You you can't tell me. Either that or you won't. This is the rub. And uh, this is what's frustrating about this conversation because Senator Kennedy uh, sums it up very well. I am someone that I consider myself an environmentalist. What I mean by that is I love this country. I love the state that I live in. I want it to be beautiful. I grew up in a beautiful part of the country. So I was born in Northeast Ohio. I've told this story before. I, I, and I don't remember much about it. It was farm country northeast of Cleveland, a little town called Newberry, Ohio, that was beautiful when I was a kid. In the woods, we used to go fishing all the time. My grandfather taught me to fish in a pond, and my friends and I would go into the woods, and we'd go fishing and run around in the woods all day. It was farm country, cornfields, and then I moved to Florida, and I lived in a beach town. The Gulf of Mexico still takes my breath away, and how beautiful. I want it to be pristine. I want all of these things to be salvaged and saved to make sure that future generations have the same beautiful atmosphere that I grew up in. And then I moved to this great place 28 years ago. I've lived here in Arizona. 
Arizona longer than I've lived anywhere else in my life. I've lived in this state. And it is absolutely breathtaking. And I want to see it preserved just like everyone else. But what the senator spells out here is an accurate conversation that everybody should be having. The advocates for climate change have been wrong throughout history so many times, inaccurate in their predictions so many times. And when Senator Kennedy is talking to somebody from the Department of Energy that says we need to spend $50 trillion as a nation to become carbon neutral, but they can't tell you with any certainty what that's going to do to the temperature of the earth. Because that's what this is about. This is about in their minds that, well, they call it climate change because they can't settle on whether it's warming or cooling. All they know is that every time there's a weather anomaly, it's because of climate change. They all know that. But they can't tell you whether it's going to warm or it's going to cool. This is the part that's frustrating to people like me because I'm relegated to say to to being a person that doesn't care. That's absolutely not true. You have no scientific evidence of this helping. You want us to spend 50 trillion dollars and you think of any other thing we'd spend money on that you can't say what the effects are going to be with any certainty. None. None. I've grown up a lot. You know, again, I was terrified. When I was a kid, I was terrified because you see the commercials. You hear what people are saying about being frozen out. 1970s, man, we were going to die of starvation because we didn't have enough of a thaw to grow crops. You go watch The Inconvenient Truth, the documentary by Al Gore, and look at how many of those predictions have never even come close to being true. And yet, anybody that says man-made global warming, man-made climate change is not something that is what they are saying it is, you are someone, you're a climate denier, and you're burying your head in the sand, and you're an, you are an industrialist, and you don't care about the planet, and it's a false narrative. It is just absolutely, unequivocally false. The question that Senator Kennedy asks is a great question. You want the American people to shift its lifestyle dramatically to become carbon neutral. You want them to make all of these changes, and you can't say how much it's going to help. You can't say what it's going to do, and you're one of the leaders. Now, if you're me or you're just some other person you're arguing with that doesn't have the answer to that question, that's one thing. But when somebody is asking about the budget and they are with the Department of Energy, isn't this some of the information? They've been wrong. I mean, they're probably going to be wrong with their guess, but they could have at least given a guess. The renewable energy revolution has a power line problem, is a headline from the New York Times. The race to produce hydrogen fuels in Arizona is on. It's promising, but not yet funded. Ford is losing $60,000 per electric vehicle sold. Um, These are all some of the headlines that have to do with this big shift in our country. We are now seeing the New York Times is starting to echo what I've been saying since this big push of this administration toward EVs. We're not ready for this this revolution. The infrastructure of this country is not ready for this. And yet it's full speed ahead. And if you don't agree with it and you don't do it, then you are part of the problem. And these are phenomenal questions. Phenomenal questions. In a moment, um, new data being released by Maricopa County on homelessness and 
is the zone being broken up going to create problems in other parts of the city of Phoenix? We'll address it in just a couple of moments. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Thanks for being here. Uh, The best parts of this show happening during the commercials. If we did pay-per-view of in-between segments of the show, we could solve every financial problem in the world, I think. Oh, that's our budget solution. Maricopa County releases uh, data on homelessness. There has been about a 7% increase in homelessness. There are, they did a head count of homeless people in Maricopa County. It is over 9,600 people. 9,642 is the number of sheltered and unsheltered individuals countywide. That's an increase of 7% from last year. That's a concerning number. Um, the Gilbert, Gilbert homeless count increased 13% from the previous year. And the county suspended the tally in 2021 due to the pandemic. Um, the reason why this data is important is because it is, it's an issue that we all have to deal with. And I think when we look at the totality of where we are in Arizona, we've done a, a great job. Um, with our economy, I will always extol the uh, the virtues of wealth. And what I mean by that is prosperity allows the prosperous to help others as long as we have a mind for other people. Now, we know that greed exists. We have uh, there are people at every economic level that are greedy. You have people that steal food stamps. You have people that homeless people that steal from other homeless people. But you also have homeless people that would give their last bite of food to a neighbor that was hungry. And there are wealthy people that are misers that, you know, the the uh, character Ebenezer Scrooge, those people exist. But what I have come in contact with for the vast majority of the people I've come in contact with that are wealthy feel blessed to have their wealth and they share it. And many people become wealthy and they get to a point where they give their wealth away. So in a society like this, awareness of things like this motivate people to solutions. When people of means, when people that have been and are very successful see that among us there is a population of people that are down on their luck, that many of them are trying to get their lives back and get back into a sense of normalcy for them, which is having a home of their own, a place to live, whether it's an apartment or a home that they are renting or something they are able to purchase someday, we work toward that end. There's a question that was asked, and and it's an interesting question in a news story. Um, Phoenix residents worry that the cleanup plan for the zone will create unsafe parks. Well, it may be in the short term that some of that is true, but not if we employ the same uh, mindset of cleaning up the um, zone that we do with the parks. Understanding this, you can be compassionate and understanding of someone's situation and still enforce the laws because you have to focus on everyone. If, and it, I'm not, this is what's frustrating. I don't want to have to go into every time I talk about this, my connection to homelessness and a cousin that died. And I am certainly not a heartless person. As a matter of fact, homelessness for me is a major concern. It is something that I find heartbreaking. But at the same time, homeless people have got to live under the same laws and the same morality that the rest of us do. In other words, 
your children and my children should be able to go into a park and feel safe and play. Families should be able to have a picnic in the park, barbecue, and sit at the picnic tables, kids on the playground equipment. And this is going to sound harsh to some, but you should be able to in the morning if you take public transportation to work, you should be able to go to a bus stop and sit down and wait for a bus and not stand there because some homeless people are camped out on the bench outside there and sleeping on the benches. You have to maintain – if I did that, if I did it, I'm let's say I take public transportation and I decide I'm going to lay on the bench and just take a nap while I'm waiting for the bus. And three other people show up and they want to sit down while they're waiting for the bus, but I'm asleep. I'm not homeless. I'm just tired. Someone's going to wake me up and say, don't be rude. Sit up and let people sit on this bench. So if we employ the idea – That everybody has to obey the law. If you don't want help as a homeless person, whether it's because of an addiction issue or you just don't want the help or there is a mental health issue and you're self-medicated, whatever it is, we've got to figure out what to do with those people. But we also have to understand that as a society, our neighborhoods should be clean. Our neighborhoods should be free of problems. We should not have drug paraphernalia and people relieving themselves in the street. This is not something that is in a, 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 a out of, out of the ordinary or out uh, that I'm being somehow um, extreme in my beliefs. We have to have a society of order, and we can still be kind. We can still talk to people and help people that want to get out of their circumstances. We can still do it. But we can't say because someone is down on their luck, they can do drugs or commit acts of prostitution or relieve themselves in the street or sleep in a tent on the sidewalk blocking the walkways or on a bench at a bus stop. That's not something that we should do. On the other hand, why are we not working together to build more shelters and give people an opportunity to work their way out of the circumstances they've gotten themselves into? I mean, that for me seems to be a a community working together. But holding people to a minimum standard of working for each other, that just because you're in a circumstance doesn't mean that you can force your circumstance on someone else. And it's not being um, callous, not at all. Um, What we're going to do just after 10 o'clock is we are going to talk about uh, jobless claims. They have jumped almost to a 19-month or an 18-month high. And we're going to talk about the circumstances of our economy and what direction we're going and what we need to do next. All of it's coming up in just a few moments.